Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here with a wonderful author and writer, historian, and uh, one of my favorite subjects, the Beatles. Blame it on the Beatles is the name of the book, the subject that we'll be talking about today, and, and everything Beatles and everything John Winter. And uh, John Winter is the author of that fantastic book, and we'll find out more about him and the Beatles as we go along. Thrilled to have you, John. How are you? I'm fine, thank you very much, Frank. Good, good to speak to you. Uh, what part of England are you in right now? I'm in Liverpool. No kidding. Okay. Wow. The uh, the holy the home, holy the home land. Of the Beatles. Yeah. Well, wasn't say that has become a uh, a major major. Uh, it's always been a major port, but uh, since the Beatles time period. Uh, it has grown in population. Is there over a million people there now? In where? Liverpool? Uh, in Greater Liverpool, there are, yes. Yeah. The, the central Liverpool, I think, is about half a million. What was the population when the Beatles were breaking? Probably around half a million, I would guess, Frank. Yeah. It's... It's got to be, you know, like I, I jokingly call it the Holy Land, but it is. I mean, it's a mecca now for people to, to travel to. It's a tourist site. It was always a port, so there was always people coming in and out from foreign lands. But you've watched it develop, I imagine, over the years. Uh, how much of a tourist attraction is Liverpool since the Beatles? Uh, how much t- in terms of tourist industry in Liverpool now? Yeah. Uh, I think the tourist industry in Liverpool is about now 100 million pounds, US, UK pounds a year in Liverpool. Um, we get 70 or 80 cruise ships coming in every year. And uh, a lot of the people on the cruise ships are people who are interested in the Beatles. Yeah, I haven't been to Liverpool yet, but I'm certainly planning on, on that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, how much of the of the city is dedicated to the Beatles. I I would imagine there's there's um, massive uh, uh, you know uh, statues and and galleries and museums. I know Pete Best has a museum with his brother Rogue there, and you know there's uh, there there's a whole batch of folks that are uh, are promoting the what happened there. Yeah, the. History. Yeah, there is, it's increased, really. Immediately after the Beatles broke up, there was a time when each of the Beatles was doing their own thing, and they almost ceased to exist as a band as far as Liverpool was concerned. And probably that all changed with the very sad death of John Lennon in 1980. Um, and suddenly people realised, hey, the Beatles aren't going to perform together ever again. And... That's when it really started taking off in Liverpool. The the Beatles suddenly reappeared as a uh, as a band, and loads of people came to Liverpool to pay their respects to where the places where John Lennon had had been in his youth, like Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane and the Cavern Club. The very strange thing was that in the mid 70s, because of the fact that there was little interest in the Beatles. The 
decision was taken to actually demolish the Cavern Club, believe it or not. Wow. And when, when I say demolished, the club was in a basement under an old fruit warehouse, and the fruit warehouse was de demolished because the local railway company wanted to build a ventilation shaft for the Liverpool Underground Line. So the cavern was going to be a ventilation shaft. Uh, but what they did, in, in fact, was destroyed the building above it, but then filled the cavern club with bricks and everything. So the club was still there, but it was full of bricks. And then they changed their mind about the ventilation shaft. And when all the interest in the Beatles built up again in the 80s, the bricks were all taken out, and using original plans and the original bricks, the cavern club was rebuilt. Um, and so if you come to Liverpool now, you can once again visit the cavern club. The only difference is that the original cavern club, which I used to go to regularly, was down a very narrow little staircase and you used to get hundreds of people packed in there to see the Beatles play. And had there been any sort of fire, it would have been an absolute disaster. So in the rebuilding, the city planners insisted on a new entrance being built, which was wider and safer than the old entrance. So although you're going into the old club, pretty much as it was, the entrance you go through is rather different. Um, and that, that in the city is known as the Cavern Quarter and takes up a part of the Liverpool city centre near the business quarter on Matthew Street, which will be familiar to anybody who knows the Beatles. But also, Penny Lane is still there, Strawberry Field is still there, and Strawberry Field was in fact a Salvation Army children's home. And John and Paul used to play in the grounds of, of, the, of Strawberry Field, which is where the idea for the song came from. And the original building was no longer safe. It dated back to pre-Victorian times. And last year it was demolished and they've built a new tourist reception centre there, which people can visit. And you can still drive along Penny Lane and see the things like the barbers and the roundabout at the end of the road and all that kind of stuff. So it's all still there in Liverpool. Let me just remind folks that are just tuning in or tuning in a little late or turning on their radios a little late. Frank McKay here with the author of Blame It on the Beatles. It's a must-get for all Beatle fans and historians, quite frankly, music fans in general. Uh, get Blame It on the Beatles. It's, uh, it, it's a, it's a must-read. Must John... Winter is our very special guest, and again, Frank McKay here with John Winter, Beater, Beatle author. Uh, John, let me get a little bit of your history and, and building up to, uh, to why you wrote the book and so forth. Uh, where did it all start for you? Are you born and bred in Liverpool? Yes, I was born and bred in Liverpool. Um, I went to school near the city centre, and uh, I was in my early teens at that time as the Beatles started to emerge. And I used to go to the Cavern Club to watch them, um, like loads of other teenage kids in the city. And the reason I wrote the book, really, there have been, been hundreds and hundreds of books written about the Beatles. Um, but the book is actually, the full title of the book is actually Blame It on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. Now, who, your American listeners might ask, is Bill Shankly? Right. Well, Bill Shankly was the manager of a local football club called Liverpool Football Club, which is now, in fact, owned by Fenway Sports in the States and doing very well. But at that time, in the early 60s, 
like the Beatles, Liverpool Football Club was unknown. It was a small club, and both the Beatles and the football emerged from Liverpool at the same time. Now, the Beatles obviously had a huge impact worldwide, whereas the football probably just had an impact initially in, in Europe. But for us kids in Liverpool, the Beatles was one side of a coin and the football was the other side of a coin. And I wanted to try and get over to people what it was like being a teenager in Liverpool at that time, which I didn't feel any of the numerous books about the Beatles, which had loads of facts in and so on, and books written by other Liverpool musicians, didn't really get the feel of what it was like in, to be a teenager in Liverpool in that magical decade. Um, so that was my aim in writing the book. Um, the feedback I've had from readers suggests that uh, I have at least to some extent succeeded in that aim. Um, I've had people contact me, contacting me from Copenhagen, Rome, Toronto, the States, saying, wow, it must have been amazing to be a teenager. Well, now I have some idea of what it felt like. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to get caught up from my standpoint in just asking you all these questions about Liverpool. And I know it, the focus of your book was, uh, it was on that area. And there's very few folks that are around that understand the significance and, and the history. I mean, everyone understands the significance of the Beatles. Let's, uh, let's make that clear. And everyone understands the significance of Liverpool. But it's you're dying out. You know, and and again, I, I'm 53 years old, and it was a, it was a little bit right before my time. But if if people aren't living to you know a hundred, we're not going to have many people to explain what it was like firsthand. And 50 years from now, we're going to have to rely on on the writings and books like your yourself, uh, it, the book that you wrote is uh, you know either I'm becoming older or more pretentious uh, is a very important book. And it's uh, it's answering questions in this historical uh, uh, texture that uh, that we have yet to uh, to answer. So I, I've I'm very excited in speaking with you. And again, John Winter, if you're just joining us, is the voice you're hearing. And blame it on the Beatles. And Bill Shankly is the name of the book. And and you like uh, like myself are. are wondering who the hell Bill Shankly is. We just got that explanation. Uh, let me just explain from from our standpoint, from the from American standpoint, I, I think when people think Liverpool, all they think about is uh, it, it, you know is the Beatles and uh, and about those those four guys and putting it on the map. Liverpool had been on the map. L Liverpool was a port town. It just wasn't a national pop culture iconic landing spot until the Beatles came along and if uh, if you want to pick out the Holy Grail or the the Mount Rushmore of of uh, cities around America that have to do with pop culture all of a sudden Liverpool pops up within New York City and London and and you know Rome and everywhere else but Liverpool breaks through simply because of this band I, what was it you know, again, what was it like going to the Cavern Club not knowing what was going to happen there? Did you look at this band and say, these guys will change the world? Or were you looking at this band saying, hey, this is this is something good to do on a Friday night or on a Wednesday night? What was your take when you were watching the Beatles emerge? I think in the very early 60s, it's probably true to say sort of, 
1959-1960, the Beatles weren't regarded as one of the, the top bands in the city. Um, music exploded in Liverpool around 1959-60-61 because of the Cunada ships which were going from Liverpool to New York and back and the crew of those ships, some of whom were American, some of whom were British, would bring records from America that hadn't been released in the UK, blues records and so on, and they ended up in Liverpool. And the Liverpool kids then formed bands and started playing that music and adding their own little Liverpool twist to it. So that's how it all started. Um, the fact that Liverpool had these links with the States and had, the, had had them for a couple of hundred years, but it was the music that suddenly fired all the kids. And as I say, the Beatles weren't necessarily regarded as one of the best of the Liverpool bands at first, but by about 1961, um, they spent some time in Hamburg, which I'm sure readers who are familiar with the Beatles know about. They had a couple of... of dates in Hamburg at, a, at a, a couple of clubs in the uh, the rough port area of Hamburg where they had to literally go on stage and play for eight hours non-stop and that really turned them around when they came back to Liverpool they were like a different band um, they picked up leather gear in Hamburg they picked up their traditional Beatle haircuts in Hamburg and uh, I think we knew them that they were something a bit special. And they, they very rapidly developed a big following in Liverpool. And then, of course, Brian Epstein, their manager, who was running a record shop in Liverpool, um, somebody came in and asked for a record called My Bonnie, which the Beatles had recorded when they were in Hamburg with Tony a Liverpool Sheridan. singer called uh, Tony Sheridan. Yep. And uh, Epstein thought, hey, that's interesting, it was a Liverpool band. He found out that they played at the Cavern Club, which was about 100 yards from his shop. And he went down there one day in his suit, uh, looking completely different from everybody else in the club, um, liked what he saw, started managing them, and the rest, as they say, is history. So he recognized that they were something special. In fact, to his credit, he was saying very early on, these boys are going to be bigger than Elvis Presley. They're going to be huge. Um, everybody else used to laugh at him, but he was right. Did you ever see the Beatles prior to them going to Hamburg? Did you see them, or were you too young? I didn't, no. No, I never, I, I never saw them prior to Hamburg, no. Um, I only saw them after they came back. It's from what friends tell me about how much they'd, they'd, they'd changed. They didn't actually play very much at the Cavern Club before they went to Hamburg. Um, they had set up a club themselves in the basement of a house in, in a suburb of Liverpool called West Derby, um, and, and they called it the Casbar Coffee Club. And it was actually in the basement of a house Alan which Williams, was owned right? by the mother. Uh, uh, Alan Williams? It was owned by the mother of the then, then, then drummer, Pete Best. Oh, right, right. That's right. The Casbar was, uh, right, uh, Mona Best. I, uh, but uh, Alan, Mona Best, that's it. Yep. What, what was the name of Alan Williams' club? Did he have, uh, uh, did he he, have a club? He, he, he ran a yeah, he ran. Uh, he he was involved with the Blue Angel um, and another club in Slater Street. Uh, ooh, what's the name? Can't remember. I remember in a Jacaranda. Jacaranda, right? That was where the Jacaranda club he was involved with. Yeah, well, and it was Alan Williams. Yeah, it was Alan Williams who actually uh, had a link with Hamburg and got the Beatles their first gig over in Hamburg with a, a guy called, if I remember rightly, Bruno, Bruno Harschmeider or something like that. Um, so Alan Williams was uh, 
was very instrumental in, in getting the Beatles going. But uh, he didn't have the contacts, I think, that Brian Epstein had to actually get them a record deal and get them known nationally. The, the famous story, and, and you see this in the complete Beatles, uh, came from Alan Williams where he was discouraged from sending the Beatles over. They said, if you send that bum group, the Beatles, uh, you're going to ruin the whole thing for us. We have a good thing going over here in Hamburg. Don't screw it up by sending the Beatles here. Frank McKay here. That's correct. Yeah, with John Winter. And again, the name of the book is Blame It on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. Uh, get the book, everyone, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Nobles and anywhere you can find fine books. And we'll get a, a website from John before we go and where to go and and, and follow along with what he's doing. But, uh, you know, respond to that. And we don't know how much is lore, uh, folklore at this point and how much actually happened. But uh, for, is it your understanding from your research and your your uh, situation being so close to the action there uh, did that happen? Uh, w were they uh, were they discouraging Alan Williams from sending the Beatles to Hamburg in the first place? Yeah, I, 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 I can't actually comment on how much active discouragement there was, but certainly, as I've said before, the Beatles weren't regarded as one of Liverpool's best bands then, and there were other bands like uh, oh, King Size Taylor and the Dominoes who played in Hamburg, um, Birchers, who played in Hamburg. Um, even Ringo's band. Even, well, Ringo's band, yes. Uh, they, they, they played in Hamburg, too. Yeah. Rory Storm, yeah. And the Hurricanes. Um, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And Rory Storm and the Hurricanes and uh, King Size Taylor, they, they were probably regarded as Liverpool's top bands. Another band called the Big Three, also. But uh, ultimately, of course, the, the Beatles eclipsed them all. And it was, they all made their name in the, in the, on the tail of the Beatles' huge success. Listen, it's, uh, it, it's fascinating every time we bring up the subject of the Beatles, but to me it's more fascinating to talk about them Hamburg, pre-Hamburg, and, and just post-Hamburg. And you were in a perfect position there to, uh, to see what was going on. And I, I'll tell you, as far as... Uh, as far as Brian Epstein goes, uh, yes, you know, he came in there dressed in a suit and everyone else was uh, was dressed as teenagers, right, as they were watching them. But he's watching a couple of hundred kids react to the Beatles. How how much energy was there in, in the Cavern Club? I mean, it, you said a couple of hundred people and they're down in the basement and it, they're, you know, they're away from their parents. It's post-war these are, this is the first generation growing up since World War II. I, I imagine there had to be a lot of energy there and changing times, of course. This is the 60s, so things were changing. Uh, little did they know uh, that the, the band you were watching was going to make the, the biggest changes in the, uh, you know, in the universe on uh, yes, the 60s. But uh, how much energy yeah. was happening there? I was, it was it was unbelievable being down there. The uh, as you as you rightly say, the sense of yeah, we're we're growing up now. This is our world that nobody else knows anything about. Um, was very special. And at the same time, of course, teenager. The idea of teenagers really started in the states. I think in America, um, we used to watch films from America and see all these um, beautiful people 
on the West Coast with surfboards and blue skies all the time and teenagers going to drive-in movies. And we didn't have any of that because it was all post-war and very restricted in the UK. But that, the Cavern Club and other places like it, they were our escape where we could feel, yeah, we're teenagers too, we've got something special um, and something our parents don't know anything about. It's our secret. And actually, because it was our secret and it was so special, uh, the, we, quite a lot of people were a little disappointed when Brian Epstein started saying, I'm going to make these Beatles world famous because we knew that if they became world famous, they wouldn't be playing at the Cavern Club anymore. Right. So we would lose them. And our little secret that was special to, to us would become the world's secret. It wouldn't, wouldn't be special to us anymore. So it was that sense of disappointment. Although we were really delighted that they were making it and putting Liverpool on the map, there was definitely a sense of uh, there was a downside to it as well. Ownership, and then you had, to, you had to share them. Let me ask you to hold your thought. John Winter, Frank McKay here, uh, telling everyone to buy... Please buy Blame It on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. Uh, it's a terrific read. It's a must-get for everyone interested in music, in the Beatles, in, in football, or soccer in this case. And uh, I'll tell you, John Winter is, uh, is a, a, an eye on history and a witness to history, and his book is historical, and it fills in a lot of the blanks that are needed. And if you walked away, let me remind everyone, you're listening to Breaking It Down, and again, Frank McKay here with John Winter. He is the author of Blame It on the Beatles. And in the first half, we were talking about Blame It on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. Uh, and, but we really didn't get into the book. And, and this, uh, th at this time, let's get a little more into it. Author John Winter and anyone who stepped away, we want to welcome you back. Uh, John, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, let's get a, a little into the book. When did you, when did you write the book? And prior to that, how, how much research, other than just regular life research and just experiences in life, how much research uh, went into it that wasn't just uh, just known and met with uh, with growing up and growing up around Liverpool? Well, it was a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, although the overall concept of the book was through my own experiences, and I, sh I should make it clear that it, the book is, is, strictly speaking, it's a novel. I think the publishers called it autofiction. And what that means is it, is it is the story of Liverpool growing up as a teenager in Liverpool seen through the eyes of a group of fictional teenagers. So all the background facts are researched and they're accurate and I was there for a lot of it, but I felt it would be easier to get this idea of getting over the feel of what it was like to be a teenager in Liverpool to actually make it a slightly fictional story, because that allowed me to talk about the emotions and the feelings of this group of teenagers. It's one of the teenagers called Tony who tells the story, and he witnesses it all, but it is also very much my own story. Um, and from a research point of view, yeah, I spent a lot of time making sure that my memories were accurate and there might be one or two minor things that aren't quite accurate. But from, from a research point of view, I think it gives you a pretty good picture. And uh, interestingly, I've had feedback. I was slightly concerned about what the, the big Liverpool bands might think about it being a fictional thing. But I've had feedback from 
bands like The Undertakers and King Size Taylor saying they love the book and uh, they really do think it gives an authentic feel of what Liverpool was like in those days. Well, you have a little bit of freedom because it's historical fiction, right? So you don't have to be, you're not writing a history book uh, per se, but you are, you, you are transporting history from, uh, you know, listen, from an eyewitness standpoint through the method of fiction. I, I think it's, it's interesting that you went that route. And, uh, you know, I think it makes it even, uh, you know, more enjoyable for, for folks and uh, both people that are into history, into the Beatles and, um, and are into, uh, into fiction. It could, uh, could get this. Uh, when you were writing the book, did you think in your mind, uh, big screen or small screen, uh, can you write a book like this in in modern days and not think about it being turned into a show or into a, a movie? To be, to be perfectly honest, Frank, no, I didn't think about movies. I was just thinking about writing the book. Um, but quite a lot of people who've read it have actually said, look, this really does read like a movie. It would make a good movie. Um, so I wasn't seeing it in those terms, but people having said to me, yeah, yeah that would make a great movie, um, I can see why they're saying that, uh, the way the book is structured. Yeah, well, let's just say it's, uh, it, it reads well, and Beatle fiction is, is going pretty well. I don't know if you saw the movie yesterday, but it was, uh, it was not, too, not too long ago that uh, that came out. I thought it was a fascinating um uh, you know, fig, piece of fiction, but it was it was absolutely terrific, and uh, in my mind, yeah. I, I liked it. I you know, like what if what if the Beatles didn't exist, but only one guy or a, a group of people understood and remembered. I, I think it's I, I think it's interesting what you said a little earlier about losing them. In other words, when Brian Epstein said, "Hey, look, they're going to be bigger than Elvis. They're going to be a big deal." You guys are thinking, well, we're not going to see them at the Cavern Club. Was there any part of you thinking, yeah, well, won't, we won't see them at the Cavern Club anymore, but we we will be able to say we were there. We watched the launch of that. Or were you too young to kind of grasp that? Probably too young to grasp that, actually. It's only, it's only afterwards. I think, as I said earlier, in the 70s, the Beatles almost seemed to disappear as a band. And we were kind of just shrugging our shoulders and saying, okay, well, that was great, but maybe things aren't so great now. But we, we had a good time in the 60s. But I don't think we were really, by the time the 70s happened, going around saying to people, wow, it was great to be there. Although I did, in the late 60s, I did spend some time in Australia. And uh, it was quite a big deal for Australians meeting somebody who was from Liverpool. So we did get a sense that there was something a bit special about it um, but I'm, I'm not sure at the time that we actually had that I was there feeling a, a sense of this was going to be historical because I think for us coming from a provincial city like Liverpool the whole idea that four ordinary Liverpool lads would become world famous, iconic and that we would be witnessing history just didn't occur to us. It didn't. It, it was so unlikely that it would happen. Um, we thought it'd be amazing if they became reasonably big stars in the UK. We certainly didn't think they would become the icons they are. And that in what 50, 60 years' time, 
uh, people would still be listening to their music and talking about them. I think that was just so beyond reason that we, we just didn't think that at all. There was nothing to look at in history that would have uh, proved that that was even possible from anyone. I mean, they changed it all. Uh, John Winter is the voice that you're hearing. Blame it on the Beatles and Bill Shankly is the name of the book. It's a historical novel and everyone's got to get it. Get it at uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but buy this book. Absolutely terrific and thrilled to have John Winter, the author of this book, with us, and he's a resident, lifelong resident, sounds like, of, of, the Be uh, of the Beatles' hometown of Liverpool, England, which has doubled in size since uh, the Beatles uh, emerged. Frank McKay here with John Winter. And if, if you could address that, I mean, it's, first of all, when was the first time you heard the words, or heard the word, or the term Beatlemania? Uh, when did I, I think the word Beatlemania was, Cooked up by a reporter on a, on one of the London-based newspapers. Um, I think it was soon after the the Beatles had had a couple of really big number one hits, and they appeared on the Royal Variety Show, which was a a show that was put on each year at the London Palladium. And uh, John Lennon, I mean the Queen, would be there and watching the band. And that was a bit unusual, anyway, having a rock band appearing before the Queen. And John Lennon memorably said, uh, OK, you, you, you people in the lower seats can clap after this short song, but you guys in the, in the expensive boxes, you can just rattle your jewellery. Great line. That was typical John Lennon. So, and it was around then, because when they appeared on the Royal Variety performance, the area around the London Palladium was absolutely thronged with hysterical kids. And I think that's when the term Beatlemania was first uh, come up with. I think it was maybe maybe they'd also just been to the States. So they were just starting to, to become internationally famous. Now, how going back to the Cavern Club, uh, how, how did they appear on stage? They must have been very comfortable after all of that time in Hamburg. And again, you mentioned seven, eight hours on stage, uh, you know, nonstop, seven days a week, and they were just constantly performing. And, uh, and you know, the term mock show, mock show, the Germans would yell out. Yep. In, in other words, make That's a it. show, yep. of it. you know, entertain us. Come That's on, it. what are you guys doing? And uh, and that, that probably molded them as much as anything they got in Liverpool. And when they got back to you guys, they had that. They were showing that. We, we understood you want to be entertained. Here's what it is. What, what were they like? Give us an example of what early Beatles post-Hamburg were like watching on stage. Were they joking around? Were they messing around? Were they uh, telling funny little quips? Uh, John Lennon, uh, you know, he, he loves to joke. Uh, you know, I know there was uh, there were stories about him, uh, you know, and, you know, accurate stories about him, uh, you know, uh, taking down his trousers or or, or doing something, uh, you know, uh, crazy like that, uh, taking pictures with toilet yeah. seats over their heads. And, and, of course, Brian Epstein got rid of all of that and, and, you know, got that. But what were they like on stage at the Cavern? They were very laid back and relaxed. I mean, a lot of the people watching were regulars. Um, they used to go in every time. So, so the band all knew them quite well. And as you were saying, Frank, they, they were constantly 
joking with the people in the front few rows. Um, and it was all very relaxed. I have to say, I never saw John Lennon without his trousers, but um, <laughs> it was a very relaxed. They, 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 it wasn't a, a prof, what you might call a professional show. Um, they were playing music they loved for people they knew um, and getting great feedback and obviously enjoying it. And it was really Brian Epstein who said to them, if you're going to be big in England, you've got to start wearing suits and put on a proper show and bow at the end of each song. Um, none of that happened in the cavern. Um, in the cavern, they were wearing casual leathers and so on. And uh, it was all very, very relaxed. But at the same time, when they came back from Hamburg, when I started seeing them, they were very professional too in terms of the sound they produced. Although they would joke between numbers when they were actually playing, that was very professional and very special. It sounded fantastic. And the cavern's quite a small place. So even with the, uh, the Vox AC30 amps, which uh, were relatively unpowerful compared with modern amplification systems, it really did fill the place. And uh, you came out of the, a session at the Cavern Club whichever of the bands was playing, was it was, whether it was the Beatles or Jerry and the Pacemakers or the Searchers or the Big Three, um, with your ear, ears ringing because the, the music had been so loud. Um, although there was another club at Liverpool called the Iron Door where the music was even louder, uh, but that's another story. But it was, it was relaxed, it was enjoyable, um, it was fun. John Winter, everyone, is the voice you're hearing. Blame it on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. It is the name of his book. Everyone must get it. He is from Liverpool uh, from day one. He was born and bred in Liverpool and watched uh, the Beatles post Hamburg uh, on their, their rise to take over the world. Uh, just an amazing eyewitness to history here. Frank McKay with John Winter. Let me ask you about the, the Cavern shows again. Uh, what originals do you remember them playing? And was it unusual to see a band back then playing their own music? Yeah, yeah, that was that was unusual. Not not many bands then were playing their own music, um, and the Beatles, as I remember, they mostly played songs like "Some of the Guy," um, but they did throw in there some of the early songs that they had written. And uh, so when they started recording songs, several of them um, we had heard before. We'd heard them play them live at the Cavern. I mean, when I'm when I'm 64, which didn't appear on a record until uh, Sergeant Pepper, I think. Um, Paul wrote that when he was about 16. Um, yeah. So uh, he he had been writing songs um, well before he uh, the band became famous. They they had quite a lot of of songs kind of in the locker, ready for for to, to record. Um, and in fact. Uh, when in their very early days, my my brother's wife, my sister-in-law, wrote to them after he'd, she'd seen them playing at a club in Southport, which is a town not far from Liverpool, just north. Um, she thought they were fantastic, and she found out where Paul lived. So she wrote him a letter, and she got a letter back from him. Um, and in the letter was a, a list of his ambitions. And one of the ambitions he put on this list was to popularize our sound, um, which he certainly did that. Um, but that would be before they were famous. Uh, and uh, his other big ambition was to have his picture in a in a comic, a UK comic called The Dandy. I don't know whether he achieved that, 
but the dandy has now closed down. So if Paul didn't get his picture in the dandy, he's never going to. <laughs> And I'm sure he made up for it in, in a million other words. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, uh, from what I understand, they weren't too crazy about uh, appearing in cartoons uh, later on. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, you never know. But it must be very flattering to, um, uh, to have been uh, immortalized in cartoon form. And they didn't lend their voice to those cartoons, which was kind of interesting. Uh, again, Frank McKay here with John Winter. Blame it on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. Bill Shankly. It has to do with football, has to do with soccer, not the not the Beatles. So, in case anybody's wondering, uh, just uh, it, it, you know, get get the book and you'll you'll get what he's talking about. But John Winter is a wonderful author and historian and just a, a an eyewitness to history on the Beatles in Liverpool. We have him for a couple more moments here, but again, Frank McKay with John Winter. Let me. Go back to to the cavern. I mean, it's uh, to me, it's just, it's it's priceless to have someone that was at these uh, areas, uh, at this place. What was the admission to get in to see the Beatles at that point? What did it cost? Yes. Okay. Oh, uh, in well, you had to be. It was a club, so you had to. What you had to do if you were each year, you had to uh, rejoin the club, and you had a little membership card, but. Oh, it was pennies to get in. It was sixpence a shilling, um, which would be like I don't know in American money a few a few cents. It was very, 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 very inexpensive. Um, the club had, the club didn't have a license, so there was no alcohol there. Um, all you could do was buy tea and coffee and sandwiches. And Silla uh, Black, famously, Silla Black was big in the states, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah, she was. She was the cloakroom girl. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's uh, in the Cavern Club. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so yeah, it was very inexpensive, and they used to have, as well as the evening sessions, a lot of the younger kids like me used to go to lunchtime sessions as well, uh, which were put on for office workers. Because the Cavern Club, although it's in the base, it was in the basement of a, a fruit warehouse. It was literally five minutes walk from the office area of the city, so. The guy running the club thought, hey, we'll put on uh, lunchtime sessions because that all the office kids can come in for half an hour, three quarters of an hour and listen to some music during their lunch break. And uh, they were very, very popular. And the Beatles were very, very regularly playing lunchtime sessions as well as the evening sessions. The the owners of the cavern became the, the Greenbergs, if I if, if I remember correctly. Deborah Greenberg's been on our on our show a couple of times. And she wrote the book Cavern Club, the in- Inside Story. She did, uh, but they bought yep. they bought the cavern. If I remember correctly, they bought the the Cavern Club after the fact. Is that right? Who originally owned the Cavern Club when you were going there? Do you remember? Yeah, uh, it was uh, originally it was started up by a guy called uh, Sitner. I forget his first name. His dad was a doctor in Liverpool, and he'd been over to France and seen jazz clubs in basements in Paris. And I think there was one particular one called Le Caveau, which is French for the cavern. And he thought this would go down well in Liverpool. So uh, he found that this, this had this empty area under a fruit warehouse and turned it into originally a jazz club. And he wasn't at all a, a pop or rhythm and blues fan, but it wasn't that successful as a jazz club. There wasn't really much of an audience for it. So he sold the club to a chap who was his accountant, called Ray McFall, and it was Ray McFall who owned it at the time the Beatles were, were emerging 
and uh, he was running it as a rock and roll club, as a rhythm and blues club, with occasional jazz bands on. Um, and it was Ray McFall, I think, who then um, sold it to uh, Debbie and her father, uh, who ran it for a number of years. Yeah, I think well, they, I think Debbie and her dad Alf, um, they started running the club in the mid '60s. So that was after the Beatles had, had actually appeared there. Um, the guy running the club while the Beatles were doing most of their appearances was was Ray McFall, and uh, yeah, and he eventually decided to sell it. Well, um, I think because. I think he, he decided to sell it because after the Beatles, um, numbers coming were dropping off a bit and he, he decided that uh, he couldn't do any more with it and Debbie and her dad had some great ideas for what they were going to do with it. So um, they, they made it a great success again. They changed it slightly and, and made it a huge success. Um, well, and uh, in, in fact, Paul McCartney turned up one there one day. Debbie may have mentioned that story. She did, yeah. Of course, she had. Uh, she did, photos yeah. And, and, and I was there. That I was there that day, and that was very special. Well, yeah. I, that, that's my la- I, that my kind of my last question to you. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I could use a part two with you, okay. and a part three even. But uh, the interaction between yourself and the Beatles. Uh, I, how uh, how often did you come in contact with them, uh, being from Liverpool? Uh, it, was it the type of thing where they were already local celebrities and they were hard to get to? Um, it, did you meet all of the Beatles? Uh, Pete Best, I imagine, back then was uh, somewhat accessible because of the Casbah uh, and, and his yep. mom. But uh, wh- what was your interaction with the Beatles? Yeah, I met Paul McCartney on a couple of occasions. Um, this is aside from seeing them performing in the cavern. Um, and uh, I knew Paul's brother Mike quite well, uh, although I've not seen him for a year or two. Um, and I see Pete Best around town still. I mean, and, and uh, I saw Pete Best. But as you say, they, they were becoming slightly local celebrities, and I wasn't actually in their immediate group of friends or anything like that. So I didn't get to know them that well. Um, even though, in fact, I went to school on Penny Lane, but that's—they uh, I, I, were not famous enough to be for me to know that that was the Beatles walking up and down Penny Lane. Right, amazing! Just an amazing witness to history. Maybe I can get you to promise to do a part two. There's so much more to talk about. Unfortunately, we're we're restricted by time. But John Winter, uh, just an incredible book you wrote. Blame it on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. And it's a must-get. It's a piece of historical fiction that everyone has to get. And whether you're a fan of the Beatles or just interested in, in pop culture or, or football, uh, soccer, uh, as we know it. And I, But anything to do with England and especially Liverpool, to me, is just absolutely fascinating. To sit here and speak to, for almost an hour, uh, someone who got to see the Beatles at the Cavern Club is just mind-blowing to me and uh, just so much more to talk about with this author. Everyone buy the book, please. It's a must-read. Blame it on the Beatles and Bill Shankly. John, went to give us a website or a social media site where people can follow along with you and what you're doing. Sorry, say that again. Sorry, I missed that. If you can, give us a website or a social media site. Yes, there is. There's a, there's a website. The website is Blame It On The Beatles, all, all together, all lowercase, blameitonthebeatles.com. And there's a fair bit of information on there. The book, as you say, is on Amazon. It's uh, 
Amazon, I think, over the next month or two, are going to have some problems with delivering hard copies of books. But it's there as an e-book as well, and I see no reason why this terrible coronavirus thing should interfere with the production of e-books. So if anybody is desperate to read it straight away before things settle down, then it's certainly available immediately as an e-book on Amazon throughout the world. Terrific job. Congratulations on the success of the book. You're getting rave reviews. Uh, not only uh, in your area and here in the States, but all over the world, as you know. Uh, John Winter, thank you very much for being here. Thanks very much for having me, Frank. It's been great. John Winter, everyone. Blame it on the Beatles and Bill Shankly is the name of the book. It's a must-get. Get it in e-form or, or whatever, uh, but get it. Uh, John Winter, again, has been our very special guest, wonderful author and eyewitness to history and the Beatles has been our subject. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down.